and welcome to the new year 2018. Good time to be in God's church. And I like how Cybill started the service and said, hey, if one of your goals this year is to have perfect attendance, you've got it. So, all right. Something to be excited about. I remember that as a kid growing up. That was a big deal. As if you were in a Sunday school or children's church uh, for 52 consecutive Sundays. That was a pretty big deal. Well, Happy New Year, uh, for sure. Glad you're here. Um, think about this time of year. What do we talk about? New Year's resolutions, right? Everybody wants to make a resolution to do this. And, and I like to call them more goals. Um, I, I, I just like to say, hey, this is a goal. Um, and this is a, a good time of year to do that. We set different goals this time of year because it's new, right? We feel like we've got a clean slate. We can start brand new, start some better habits this year. And so we kind of do that categorically, I think. We, we kind of have goals that are different categories. Like we may have some financial goals this year. So we're going to reach these financial goals, you know, in our family or as an individual. And so we're going to do this financial goal. Some of us, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to lose weight this year. That's one of our goals is we're going to get in better shape this year. Some of us... Uh, we're at work, and we've maybe set some, some things up where we're at work. I'm going to reach the sales goal these year, this year, you know, reach this many customers this year. And so we set goals in a lot of areas in our life, and I would say most people do that. Most people say, yes, I'm going to set some goals. The New Year's a good time to do that. I'm going to get on board with that and set some goals. But I want to challenge you to think, well, some of the most important goals that we can set are goals in our spiritual life. But we need to start thinking more about our spiritual walk and, and really set some goals there. Uh, if, if you're sitting here today and, and you can think back to January of 2017, you're like, man, I feel I don't advance in my relationship with God at all. I, I didn't read the Bible more. I didn't pray more. I, did. I just don't feel like I grew spiritually. Then you need to do something different this year. You, you might need to get involved in a Bible study. You might need to start doing accountability with another believer. Uh, you might need to, to really make use of your time strategically to spend some time alone with God, to really dig into His Word and study it and get to know it um, for yourself or, or to spend more time in prayer talking to Him. But whatever it is, the, the bottom line is this. If you aim for nothing this year, you will hit nothing, all right? If that is your goal is I'm going to do nothing this year spiritually, guess what? You'll be right. You'll be right where you are. You'll be sitting here in 2019 saying the exact same thing. So it's a good time to do those goals, and, and I think if we actually set spiritual goals and become closer with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and become closer to our Heavenly Father, that that's some of the most satisfying things that we'll ever experience in life in this world. And so if you're looking for ultimate satisfaction, you're not going to find it in worldly things. Uh, the results are not going to be happier with more things that you acquire or involve yourself in in this world. It will be about the things that last even into eternity, and those are the things that really matter. Well, today as we start off this year, um, we're going to start a new series um, next week on, on transformation, transforming your life. But today, as we start the new year, I wanted to share with you a very familiar passage that most of us are going to say, hey, we know, uh, we've heard that before, but we're going to look at it from a slightly different perspective. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to open those to Luke chapter 9. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, and you can, uh, just as a reminder, you can always follow along uh, through the... Uh, Bible app or through the Oakwood app, and it has all the notes and scriptures, um, all that stuff right there for you. If you do not have your Bible this morning, feel free to grab that one right in front of you, 
Go ahead and do it right now. That's an action step if you didn't bring your Bible. Go ahead and grab that. Open it up to 866, page 866. You'll be right there, Luke chapter 9. And we're going to begin with verse 10. We're going to talk today about the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Jesus feeding the 5,000. A lot of you are like, hey, I know that story. I've heard that story. Let's begin there with verse 10, Luke chapter 9, verse 10. It says, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. So let's stop right there. We've got to have a little bit of context before we dive right into the word. This morning, the context is this, is the apostles are Jesus' disciples, his followers, his closest friends, and they are telling, it says they told him, they're telling Jesus, the Son of God, all that they had done. Now, if you go back to the beginning of this chapter in, in chapter 9 here, and you look at the first few verses, you find out that Jesus has actually given uh, his disciples, the apostles, the power and authority to cast out demons and to cure diseases. So specifically, he gifted them, you're going to heal illnesses and diseases, and you're going to cast out demons. And while you're doing this, I'm sending you out, and you're going to proclaim the kingdom of God to people. You're going to get people to, to wake up and to realize, wow, these people are powerful, and they're powerful because of what God is doing in and through them. And so he gave them the power to proclaim while they're healing and, and while they're having authority over demons. And so they came back to Jesus here 10 verses later to kind of give a report. So it says, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. All the stories about, man, I healed this village. I went there and there were three blind people and I restored their sight. And we went over here and did this. And it's it great, super exciting. It says, and then he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Now, interesting pattern in Jesus' life. And I know I've pointed this out before, but I think it, it bears um, a, a, a reminder this morning. So many times in the scriptures, you see Jesus personally and here with the disciples collectively, they go and they do ministry 100 miles per hour and they're, they're healing and they're teaching and they're proclaiming the kingdom of God and then they withdraw. In fact, it says several times in the scriptures that Jesus, after he was amongst the crowds, he was really popular, he's amongst the crowds and the crowds are like, hey, you know, Jesus is awesome, he's teaching them. It will, it will actually say in there that Jesus withdrew to a lonely place. And what Jesus is doing there is he's getting time alone with his heavenly father. He's withdrawing because he knows I have to stay connected to the source there's a great lesson in, in, in that for all of us, is that sometimes we're in a ministry season where we're really busy and we're giving and we're giving, but we are also called to withdraw and reconnect with our Heavenly Father. So it says that he took them, he withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Now, Jesus was popular at this time, okay? So we get to verse 11 here, it says, and when the crowds learned it, because the crowds are just falling around, they're like, wow, these people do miracles. I mean, cousin Eddie didn't have a leg, his leg grew out, he can walk again. These people are amazing, we've got to go see it. And this guy, Jesus, he teaches like no one else. You've never heard a guy speak like this. I mean, you've got to go see this. So the people of the crowds, they're following Jesus. And it says, and when they learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them the kingdom of God and cured those who had needs of healing. Now the day began to wear away. So it's getting later in the afternoon. And the twelve came to him and said, send the crowds away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and to get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. So they're out in the country, and he's saying, hey, you need to send these people away because it's going to be supper time. We don't have anything to feed these people. There's no, you know, no McDonald's in the area. And so you're going to have to go, and you're going to have to, to, to uh, send these people away so they can you know, get something to eat and find lodging for a night and kind of, kind of settle in because they're just out here just listening to you teach, Jesus. And in verse 13, it says, but he said, this is Jesus, it says, but he said to them, you give them something to eat. 
You give them something to eat. And they said, well, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. I mean, how are we going to feed these people? Now, when we read this same story in John's Gospel, chapter 6, we find out that there was a boy that had the five loaves and the two fish. So he shared this, this with the disciples. So then it says, you know, we have more, no more than five loaves, two fish. How are we supposed to feed these people unless we go buy food for all of them? Verse 14. It says, for there were about 5,000 men. And the way the Bible does this is they just count the men because they're the head of their households. So when it says 5,000 men, most Bible scholars believe you know, with the men representing their households, there was probably somewhere between twenty and 25,000 people there listening to Jesus' teacher. So it's not only the men, it's the men and their wives and their children are all there to hear Jesus, to, to see the miracles, to, to see what he's going to teach them. And, the, and then he said to his disciples, he said, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. He's organizing them for something. Have them all get in groups of 50. And they did so. And had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. What an amazing miracle that five loaves and two fish feed 20 to 25,000 people. And it doesn't say they just fed them. It says there in verse 17 that they ate until they were satisfied. That word satisfied was used in Matthew's gospel when he was doing the Sermon on the, on, on the Mount. And there in chapter 5 in the Beatitudes, there was that verse, and we studied this early last year, where they said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Same word. It means they will be completely fulfilled and not wanting anything else. Now what's significant about this for our story is we didn't just hand around two pieces of bread and all you got to make it do. These people ate till they were full. They ate till they wanted no more. It's an amazing miracle if you think about it. Five loaves, two fish, feed everyone. Now if you've heard this passage before and you've heard this story before, you've probably heard it from one of these three perspectives. So if you've been taught this passage before, you've probably been taught from one of these perspe perspectives. I want to begin there this morning with you. And the first one is this. You've probably been taught it through the perspective of the disciples. The disciples. And the theme for that teaching there would be that you do what the Lord asks of you and great things will happen. If you just do what the Lord asks of you, great things will happen. And, and you know that in regards to the disciples here because they were like, Jesus, I mean, what are you what you're saying? Feed these people and not send them away. It's like, we're we going to buy food for them all? We've got five loaves and two fish. That's not enough to feed this size of crowd. I mean, what are you talking about? They didn't understand. But Jesus said, hey, bring me the bread. And he blessed it and he broke it and he started passing out. He said, hey, hand it out to the people. Give it away. Just start giving it all away. And it worked. And so there's this, this element of faithfulness in these disciples that if you will just do what the Lord asks of you, great things will happen. You may, may have heard that, that, uh, that lesson from this passage before. Another perspective on it is you can look at it from the perspective of the boy, the boy that had the loaves and the, and the fishes. He's mentioned in John's Gospel, chapter 6. And the theme there is that if you offer what you have to the Lord, you can watch God use it in mighty ways. If you'll just give Him what you have... That he can take it and bless it and multiply it, and, and, and he's going to use it in amazing ways. 
Just offer what you have to the Lord in faithfulness and know that he can use whatever it is that you have. And, and you've probably heard that regarded to not only finances, but, but also to things that you have, objects that you own, maybe even to talents or abilities that you have. You've heard that, hey, just give it to the Lord and, and you can watch him do amazing things, do mighty works. So we have the perspective of the disciples and the perspective of the boy. And then there's the perspective of the crowd. Maybe you've heard this perspective on feeding the 5,000. And the theme there was that if you follow Jesus faithfully, he will provide all that you need for life and for salvation. Jesus will provide all that you need for life and for salvation. He gave them life because he fed them because they were physically hungry. He took care of their physical needs. But more than that, what did he do? It says there in our passage that he proclaimed to them the kingdom of God. He shared the gospel message. He shared the truth of salvation with them. He shared who he was. He revealed to this crowd who he was and what the kingdom of God was about. And so he shared with them the kingdom of God. It is amazing. And so if we follow Jesus faithfully, we can trust him because he's going to provide not only all that we need for life in the physical sense, but also for salvation in the spiritual sense. And we can like wrap it up now and say, hey, these are three great lessons. This is, this is really excellent um, all of them are true. Great lessons, great points here, and, and really enormous applications for our lives, correct? If we just apply these things and really live this way, amazing things could happen. But for the rest of this time this morning, I want to look at this passage through a different perspective, maybe a, perhaps a different lens that maybe you've never considered before. We're going to look at this passage through the perspective of the bread. And this perspective is something that I have never thought about really. I never really studied, didn't hear this in Bible college, didn't consider this myself until I heard it in a devotion at a state preacher's meeting this fall. Some guy gave a devotion on this story and I'm sitting there going, okay, which one is he going to go? Is it the crowd? Is it the boy or the disciples? Crowd, boy, disciples, you know. And, and then he starts talking about the bread. And it really made me consider what's going on with the bread in this story. Bread. I mean, what's the big deal with bread? Well, if you read the Bible, you can understand that bread is actually really important in the Bible. But you can actually find bread all the way from Genesis through Revelation in the Bible. You remember some of these stories? Remember the unleavened bread? Bread that had no yeast in it so it would not rise, and the Israelites were commanded to use that to celebrate their Passover meal. The yeast represented the sins of Israel, and they were to remain pure, so they were to have no yeast in their bread. And it was a reminder of that. It was also uh, to remind them that when they left Egypt, they had no time to let the bread rise. They had to get out of their fast, and so there was no time to put the yeast in and let the bread rise. And they even have a feast of unleavened bread. Bread. Manna. They came down from heaven when they were wandering in the wilderness, the Israelites. In John chapter 6, Jesus actually calls that manna bread from heaven. Bread. Bread that was taken in the upper room with the disciples. And Jesus stated how this would represent his body now. And how when you take of this bread, you need to remember me. You need to remember the sacrifice that I'm about to go and perform for you and your sins. If you were here for the Christmas series in, in the last month, um, you might remember that Bethlehem comes from two words, Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. And, and that means house of bread. Bethlehem means house of bread. And it's amazing because that house of bread brought us what? In John chapter 6, Jesus is talking, he's teaching, and he, he calls himself the bread of life. 
And he says that you must eat of his bread to participate with him. Or you have no part of him if you do not participate with him in his body, which is represented through bread. It's really a foreshadowing of communion to be a participation with Christ someday through this bread. You see, bread is a big deal in the Bible. It's even used in miracles. Like, do you remember Elijah and the widow of Zarephath? Another miracle involving bread. So, so bread, it's important. It's symbolic. It's, it's miraculous at times. And Jesus uses it to represent his body in communion. Now, knowing all of this background into bread, let's look at our passage today through this perspective a little more closely. What happens with the bread in our passage? Look at verse 16. It says, And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Before that bread does the miracle, before that bread is useful to Jesus, what happens? What does Jesus do with the bread before it is used for his divine purpose? I want to share with you the three things that happen in verse 16. The first thing you'll notice there, it says that he said a blessing over the bread and the fish. He said a blessing. It says there that he looked up to heaven. And I believe Jesus did that very purposefully because he wanted to remind that crowd and the disciples and everybody there, he wanted to remind them that all the blessings that we have in life flow down from heaven. They're all from heaven ultimately. They all come from God. We are a blessed people that we could call Christ our Savior and have salvation. That we would receive Him in such a way that He would actually receive us as sinners and then pay the price for our redemption. We are so blessed when we stay walking with Him in our lives. When we are headed toward heaven together. Because we are walking with Him every step of the way. And we're walking away from the sin that so easily entangles us. Yes, Jesus did not only save us for heaven, but He saved us from our sins and says that we should walk in them no longer. We are blessed. Salvation is a blessing. A relationship with Jesus Christ and God the Heavenly Father is a blessing. The redeemed life now that brings joy, that brings hope, that can bring ultimate satisfaction and meaning to your life is such a huge blessing. If you have received Christ, then you have received a huge blessing. And if we came in this morning and said, hey, how many of you want to be blessed? Everybody should raise their hand. Everybody should raise their hand. Do you want to be blessed? Yeah, everybody should raise their hand. And then I, I did a sermon a few years ago where I asked, how many of you want to be more blessed? And I remember everybody in the room, hey, yeah, be more blessed. Yeah, I love the blessing of the Lord, the favor of the Lord. Yeah, I want to be even more blessed. The scripture in the book of Acts, where Jesus had spoken it before, and it comes to us in the book of Acts where he had says, it is more blessed to do what? To give than receive. More blessed. It sounds like a great thing. And we are truly a blessed people. Jesus provides for us the blessing of God Almighty. And in this moment when he's about to do this miracle, he's about to feed these crowds, he's about to show his power, and he's about to show the blessings of heaven, he looks up to heaven and he blesses the bread. He gives it his favor. He gives it God's sprinkling of authority. 
He gives it miraculous power and He blesses it. Now this is something that's fun. If we experience blessings in our life, we're like, hey, yeah, I'm all about the blessing. Let's do the blessing. In fact, let's do the blessing over and over and over again. We walk around as Christians like, man, I am so blessed for this, so blessed for that. God has truly blessed me. We like it. And Jesus did it. He started out by consecrating this bread, calling it into the service of the Lord God Almighty. And he blessed it. And then the next part tells us that he broke it. Look what it says there in verse 16. It says, And looking up to heaven, he said a blessing over them, and then he broke the loaves. That word broke never has a positive connotation. I thought about this all week. I thought, is there any place where we could say broke or broken, they would be like, oh, that's really positive. And I couldn't find one. It is unpleasant no matter how you use it, no matter what context you put it into. Think about this this morning. If you came in this morning, you said, I broke my windshield on my car. Is that a good thing? No, negative. You broke your windshield. If you come in this morning, you say, I am financially broke. Is that a good thing? No, because you have no money. So you are what? You are broke. It's again, it's a negative thing. If you came in here this morning, you said, well, I've broken my arm or broken my leg. Again, you've broken something that's not good. If you came in this morning, you said, my heart is broken. Again, it's, it's a negative connotation. If you broke something valuable during the holidays, if you broke that ornament that grandma gave you, or you broke the snow globe, because I broke a snow globe that was given to us for our wedding, and I broke it, and I cried about it, okay? <laughs> broken is not good. Broke has a negative connotation. But yet... If you read the Bible, it seems like this is a process that we see God put people through, or in this case, put objects through, that he breaks them. We become broken people. We see this pattern where we're chosen, we get the favor of the Lord, and we're blessed, and then we're broken. And we have to be broken to be fully used for God. It's part of the development process. I was trying to think of examples from that in the Bible, and the one that jumps out at me is one of my favorite stories from the Bible, is David and Bathsheba, and when Nathan the prophet comes and he rebukes uh, David for his sin. So let me, let me tell you, just give you a little bit of that story this morning. King David, this is David and Goliath David, David with the stones, slays the giant, the giant killer David. You know, glory be, he's a, he's, he's a faithful kid. He ends up replacing Saul on the throne of Israel. And he's become king. And he's out in the palace one night on the rooftop looking over his kingdom, looking over the city. And he sees a beautiful woman bathing. And he says, I want that woman. And so he commits already adultery in his heart. He begins to lust for her flesh. And he summons her to come to the palace. And then they are together. And the story goes, and just to shorten it up and keep it tight with us this morning, that he is actually, she's married, she's, he's actually going to have her husband killed. The way he did it was he was a soldier in his army. He calls him home and, and, and tries to get him to sleep with his wife because uh, she's pregnant now with, with David's baby. And so he's trying to cover it up. And that doesn't work. He goes back to the army. He sends a messenger to the army to send this guy, his name was Uriah, to send Uriah to the front lines and have everybody draw back so that he's killed. That's how far this sin goes to cover up this pattern of lust and this pattern of adultery in his life. Bathsheba comes to the palace to live with him after Uriah is dead. 
takes, him as, takes her as his wife, and they have this child together. And then the prophet Nathan comes to him. And Nathan comes to him, and he says, King, King David, I, I want to share a story with you. He says, there was, a, there was a man who was very, very poor. He had like zero possessions. And his most prized possession was this little sheep, this little lamb that he had. And, and the story goes that he loved that lamb. The lamb lived with this, this man in his house. It was like a pet to him. He was so fond of that lamb. But then the ruler of that village, the king of that kingdom, came to that man and took his sheep to use it as, to use it as something in, in a royal feast. He took the only thing that was really precious to that guy and he took it away. And the story says that David, he was so tore up by the story and so upset about it that he be, literally began, began ripping his royal garments, just began tearing them, which was a sign that you're angry and emotional. And, and he, says, he says, surely, surely this man, you know, this rich man that took the little sheep, surely this man should die. And Nathan says, you are that man. Can you imagine a rebuke like that? You're the guy. And David immediately, there was no explanation, he, he knew immediately. And what you see in Scripture after that rebuke, very stiff and, and stern rebuke, is that David is broken. And you can read about 2 Samuel, you can see the David before, and then you kind of start reading the Psalms, and you read a little bit about the David after the Bathsheba and the Nathan rebuking him incident. And you find out that he is broken. And I'm here to challenge you, if you read the whole story of David and study it, that it was then and only then that David was at his greatest usefulness for the Lord. He was, had reached his potential for the Lord. was after he was broken and after he was separated. And after he was broken, he could be, real, be built back up into what God wanted him to be. This is a pattern in the Scriptures. Go with me for just a moment. Peter Jesus is one of Jesus' best friends, one of his closest disciples. In his inner circle of the twelve is this man named Peter. Converses with Jesus more than any of the disciples in the Bible. It's Peter. And Peter's the one that denies Jesus three times. And after that, Peter's confronted and he's broken. The apostle Paul was stricken with blindness on the road to Damascus. And he was broken. Ruth and Naomi in their struggle before they meet the kinsman redeemer Boaz, they were broken. Abraham going up on the mountain to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, at the altar, Abraham becomes broken. And I could go on for the rest of our time this morning and just give you story after story and name after name of people in the Bible, in the scriptures, that were blessed and they were chosen by God and they were favored by God and then they were broken. The good news is, God doesn't leave them there. He breaks them with the purpose of rebuilding them so that they are more useful for God. And so they look more like the people that they were created to be. Now, some of you this morning might say, I've had the blessed season. But right now, I'm in a broken season. And there's struggle. And there's pain. And there's anxiety. And there's maybe even a feeling of desperation. But desperation for what, I would ask you this morning. Most of us are desperate for it to end. Most of us are desperate for there to be an end in sight. But don't miss it. What we're to be desperate for when we're broken is God. Not for it to end, but for God. Not for the pain to be taken away, but for God. That we would be desperate for Him. That we'd be desperate for a touch from His Son Jesus. Desperation to live for Him. To get back to a point 
of blessing. And usually, not all the time, because there, there's suffering in this world that has nothing to do with our sin, but sometimes it's because God is trying to get rid of some sin in our life, and that's why we keep going through the pain. And when He wants to break us down, it's with the purpose of rebuilding us for His great purpose. So what happened to this bread before? It was useful to the God. Jesus took it and He blessed it. And then he broke it. And then look what it says there in verse 16. It says, then he broke the loaves and then he gave them to the disciples to go out to the crowds. To set the bread before the crowds. So he blessed it. He broke it. And then he gave it away. When the bread was blessed and broken, then Jesus gives it away to minister to the needs of the people. Breaking the bread physically made it go even further than it would have if he just kept it in loaves. And he uses it to fill hungry people so that they may receive the Lord's provision for physical needs. And ultimately, through Jesus' word being spoken to them that day, a provision for their spiritual needs as well. Now, as we begin this new year together, and hopefully all of us, if we haven't already set some spiritual goals, we will set some spiritual goals to get closer to God because We want more of Him in our life. We know our need for Him. We want to be useful for His divine purposes. I want want us all to do two things. So in light of this Scripture and this knowledge today and looking at this story of the 5,000 from a different perspective, what do we need to do? I challenge you with two things. The first one's really simple. The first thing we must do is we must develop an awareness that like this bread in the passage today, we are going to be blessed and broken. We are going to be blessed and broken and broken and for some of us this will be a pattern that will happen more than once or twice in our lives it's to be a pattern of blessing and a pattern of being broken and i want us to develop awareness of this because just being aware that these seasons of blessing and brokenness are coming our way will help us to open our hearts more to the work that god wants to do there To not close ourselves off and not to be angry and not to get in protection mode, but to actually open ourselves to a rebuke when it comes our way. To actually open ourselves to a brother or sister in the Lord that says, hey, you're not doing the right thing. You're not going the right path. To actually open ourselves to the Word of God and read it for convictional purposes, not to just check a box that we did our devos for the day. We must develop an awareness. There are going to be times of blessing. (laughs) And they're awesome. And there are going to be times of brokenness. The second thing that we need to do is that we, the second thing is we would embrace God's process for sanctification and transformation in our lives. That we would not be aware of the process only, but we would actually embrace the process. Embrace what God is trying to do in your life through the situation that you're in. Through the circumstances maybe that you've created or He's allowed you to be in. That we are going to be in those times and we are going to embrace God's process of sanctification. Then to know that on the other side of what we're going through, we will be more like Jesus. We are going to grow in our faith. We're going to grow in the reality that we believe who God is. We believe He says who He is. We believe He can do all the things that He says that He can do. And it's going to transform us and it's going to grow us in our faith and we're going to look more like Jesus on the other side. The title of today's message is Blessed, Broke, and Given. 
we are blessed, broken, and given away. Just like the bread in the story today. Where are you on that journey right now? If you could tone it down for a second and just say, where am I on this journey in my life? Where are you? Ask yourself, if someone were to look at my life right now, what would they say? Ask yourself these questions. Am I a Jesus user or am I a Jesus follower? If someone were looking at me, would they say Jesus user or Jesus follower? Because I think there's a big difference there. I think we really struggle with that sometimes. I mean, I have to, I have to wonder sometimes, how do we stop being a bunch of Jesus users? I mean, when did Jesus become more about benefits that we receive instead of the Lord that we are called to follow and to love and to endure and to embrace? Because my fear is that we become Jesus users. I'm not sure that Jesus users go through the blessed and broken and given away part in their life. They can't. We have to humble ourselves and allow God to do His work. And you see, part of the answer to embracing our blessed, broken, and given lives, it's critical to exercise our faith because we are not to be dead people. We are to be resurrected people. And your new life, which is the real life, which is the life that God intended you to have from the very beginning, is in Christ alone. And we got to get to a place where we can stay in Christ alone and look to Christ alone and believe and put our faith in Christ alone, even when we go through times in our life where we're blessed, broken, and given away. I'm here to tell you this morning, some of the best times in your life are not going to be the blessings, they're going to be the broken, and they're going to be the given away, because that's when God does his most amazing, transformative work. Are you allowing him to do that today? Are you ready to be a piece of bread in Jesus' hands? to be used by Him, 